Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. We're all about the places where design and development overlap. We talk with the industry experts about trends in design, development, and take a look at new ways to build digital experiences, typically over a beer or two. Hi, and welcome to the Design System Podcast. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud or at knapsackcloud. Today, I am very excited to welcome Stephen Gates. He's the head design evangelist in Vision. He's host of the Crazy One Podcast. Stephen, uh, really, really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for agreeing to, to be on the show today. No, thanks for so much for having me. So you do a ton of work with people. I think that, that it it's safe to say that your passion around design systems around design in general is is the human side of it uh, where you know you like to work with people very intimately in a, a coaching environment you like to talk to people about their careers you like to talk to people about how they develop themselves as designers tell me a little bit about how you think about the work that you do in the context of design systems so I my background was yeah I worked at ad agencies I worked at you know in-house teams I worked at Starwood I worked at Citibank you know would, would help to Citibank develop their design system and I think a lot of it for me was sort of this realization that the tools are great the processes are great. They were not the thing that was sort of really defining success. And I think that was something I wanted to start to sort of lean into more was to understand just why was that, right? Like what what made the difference? What was going on with creativity? I think it was something even in my own career I'd sort of struggled with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, design systems for me are particularly interesting because I think, you know, in many cases, they're probably one of the most complicated. I think especially from like a coaching and a team perspective, whenever it comes to actually making them successful, just because there are so many parts of them, so many different teams, so much like freedom in a frame, like there's just, you know, mental shifts and so much that needs to go on with it. And I think, you know, that was where, you know, I definitely had a front row seat to that going into, you know, an organization like city of 300,000 people launching. Mm -hmm. Cause I think there were six active design systems whenever I got there and I was like, none of them work and we need a seventh. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's just a lot of sort of intricacy and complexity that, in many cases, I think is a direct line back to what often are some of those sort of people struggles that you'll see inside of teams and companies. It's interesting you bring up that because the, the complexity side of this and, and the ripple effect, I guess, of, of a design system inside of an organization. I mean, it changes your processes. It changes your tools. It changes the way you think about collaboration. It changes a lot of of the connections that you have to make in order to be successful to implement one of these things. Thinking about those connections and those kinds of things you need to foster, like what advice would you give to, to a design leader or to a development leader that is looking to adopt one of these design systems about the connections they need to make to really make it successful? I think there's a couple of things. I think one is just be clear about what are you trying to accomplish? Because I think in many cases, you're doing something that is very big and very complicated with a lot of different agendas and a lot of people having opinions. I think just sort of being simple and clear about, look, these are the three, five, probably don't do more than seven kind of like objectives of just why are we doing this, mm -hmm. right? So I think to be able to do that. And then I think a lot of it is also for me is really, I'll, I'll try to coach people on, you know, you want it to be a collaborative process for just the simple fact that like people will support what they're a part of. And if you go and present a design system to them, the adoption is always much, much lower than if you're able to say, okay, look, can we do this together? Can we figure this out? Can we work on this? Can we research it? Can we test it? Can we because then they're actually involved in it. And and that's why I said is I think that alone makes a, a really kind of key difference. So so that involvement fosters some sort of connection between, you know, the people that are using the design system and the people that are building the design system. And so that that implicit trust that you build up is something that, you know, has value to to the overall success of the project. And I think that that's 
that's something that, that I'd love to hear a little bit more about from you. Like, how do you think about fostering that relationship between teams? Like involvement is, is the first set, uh, you know, and a great general kind of guiding light. Is there specifics that you think about when you say like, how do I go about really connecting with me as the the creator of a design system with the people that are ultimately consuming that design system inside my organization? Oh yeah. Well, I think that for me, it's, I mean, it's, it's a relationship you probably should have when you're building any product, right? Because I think there's always that it's a living thing. It is not, mm. it is not static. It is not. And I think that is often the case is if you launch a design system and it's not static and there's not a conversation between the creators and the consumers, uh, meaning the people that are actually using the system, then the system very quickly becomes an excuse that it right. can't do what it wants or like it's too restrictive or it's too open or it's too... And, and so, again, I think that a lot of it is there, there has to be that sort of back and forth in that dialogue. You have to be transparent in what it is you're doing. You have to sort of trust and, and be able to understand what's going on. And again, I think these are sort of the foundational elements of what real sort of teamwork is. But again, I think since it has such wide reaching impact, since it is, you know, it does go so deep and wide into an organization, it really does then sort of force and surface a lot of those issues that were probably always there but we could compartmentalize them or we could do different things because we weren't all sort of having to play from one playbook or one system. Mm -hmm. No, and you hear a lot of, of people talking about like the challenge of, of introducing a design system being that, you know, you, you can't fix a, a broken team um, right. or, or you can't easily like, you know, shoehorn a tool in and make a broken team suddenly more functional. I think, I think it's probably maybe a, a better way of saying it or a more nuanced way. And so when you think about, that like these underlying problems that exist inside of, of an organization that you expose via this um, you know new way of thinking and new way of building like how do you how do you uncover those things in in a timely way and how do you tackle them so that you could actually be successful implementing a design system? Yeah, I, I mean I think the biggest one is trust because I, I think it's just as you look at high maturity teams as you look at high performance teams, trust is is absolutely the center of it and and it's interesting if you as you start to study it as I have. There's actually two forms of trust, actually three, really. There is no trust, which is a viable <laughs> option. There is something that's called practical trust, which basically means I trust somebody to do very functional things, to show up on time, to deliver something when they say it's very sort of like straight down the line, very procedural process driven, doesn't tend to yield much more than sort of basic results. And then there is emotional trust. And emotional mm -hmm. trust really is okay, look, I believe in what we are doing. I am doing this for not just myself, but for other people. You'll hear teams even talk differently. They'll say how they believe in the mission or believe in the leadership or they believe what this is doing. I assume that has a major impact on your culture as well. So if, you, if you're able to get to that point of emotional trust, you're actually talking about a, a culture shift that, that exists as a result from it. No, completely. And I think that's as, so for all the companies that everybody loves to sort of fetishize and hold up and whichever ones they all love, you know, those high performing teams have emotional trust. I think it's also mm -hmm. if you look at sports teams, musicians, the military, like hell, even superheroes like the Avengers, whenever they win, they always get emotional trust. Right. But I, I think in many cases, it it is a really hard. It's hard to just say, like, hey, let's be better at this because you actually really need to invest in people. You sort of can't fake the funk. The thing that I'll often do is I'll ask people, I'll, I'll sit down with the team, and, and usually if it's something like this, to be able to say, look, this has probably been a longstanding problem since we're doing a design system or something that's kind of surfacing it, I make them just fill out a simple scorecard. So either as an individual, fill out the five or 10 coworkers you work with the most, or if you're a team, fill out the five or 10 other teams you work with the most. And then for each one of those, rate them on what sort of trust you have. Is it none? 
Is it practical or is it emotional? And if it's emotional, you get like half points. If that mm-hmm. happened because you do something outside of work, you get beers, you play softball. Like it's great, but just recognize it didn't happen because of work. And it just really gives you often a very sobering landscape of what are we dealing with? Because if none or practical are all your checkboxes, there are some things you're going to need to work on if that system is ever going to get off the ground and be successful. That's really interesting. I wonder, so we find that there's kind of two inflection points that we see in design system adoption, right? There's there's the initial like, let's get this thing off the ground, which right. is is a hard hill to overcome, right? Like you have to build some momentum, you have to roll that boulder up that hill and so you get to to the the peak and then start it starts to roll down the other side and builds its own momentum. So there's that that initial adoption inflection point of of getting one product or three products to to use your design system. And then we tend to find that a much bigger inflection point happens, you know, a year, 18 months into to the practical use of a design system where now all of a sudden there's a lot of demand on that core design system team and the stuff that worked for one or three products suddenly doesn't work for 20 or 30 products that are using the design system. And and that tends to be the more dangerous uh, inflection point that we've seen with with our customers where you know, suddenly uh, uh, the demands on that core team really exceed their ability to scale. And a lot of design systems fail at, at that point. I would say potentially as many as as don't ever get off the ground. You know, applying that trust rubric to those inflection points, what do you see there? Well, I think for the, the first inflection point, I think often that lack of trust will sort of manifest itself in like a war for who is right. Is design right? Is engineering right? Is product right? Like all we're doing is spending all this time to figure out who has like the right opinion whenever none of that matters. Oh, goodness. We have had so many of those conversations. (laughs) Right. But I think but that's the problem is and this is the same thing that I can see in an organization. Like if I ask you for your org chart and what matches your website or your app navigation, I can tell you how siloed and dysfunctional you are before we ever have a single conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that first inflection point is can we get over this being like a war for power, right? Like which one of us is, is sort of in control of that. And then I think as you get to that second inflection point, then that becomes a, l- a little bit different because sometimes the designers will sink it. But I mean, again, I've talked to many teams who will describe it as scrapbooking or like somehow because you're not drawing a unique button every time that somehow you're not, I, I don't know, that somehow you're giving up a level of control <laughs> that apparently is just leads to an unsatisfying career that I will never seem to understand because all we're asking you to do is now to func- to actually focus on creativity and creating great experiences, which you think people would love, but apparently I don't know what, you know, have drawing a button is the secret to creative happiness. No, I'm with you. I, I was, I was joke about how like, you know, somebody goes to to four years of design school and, and makes table layouts their oh, entire yeah. life. Like I, I don't necessarily see that as like the, the brilliant, fulfilling creative career that, that a lot of designers aspire to. Well, but I, and I think that that you, that people tend to struggle at that inflection point, because I think, again, I study a lot of sports psychology. I study a lot of developmental psychology And it's the same thing you'll see with athletes, that in many cases, they can have incredibly high talent. But if they don't have a work ethic or a humility, they're not successful because Mm -hmm. it really comes down to that. Like, you know, if I'm on a sports team, am I playing for the team name on the front or my name on the back? Right. And that in many cases, people just want they want to be able to do whatever it is they want to do. And because and I think a lot of corporate culture feeds into that because we have big fives and KPIs that very much encourage I statements. Mm-hmm. What I did to get my bone, like we don't tend to have a lot of collective we statements. And and that's the thing is, I think, you know, it's sort of ego that kills it in both spots. It just tends to be team ego, you know, oftentimes on the front side, because it's just we can't figure out how to work together. And then as it gets to scale, everybody just wants, you know, they want so, everything needs to be an exception. Everything needs to be unique, everything. And yeah, that's just it's not sustainable because people 
I think, and that's the part where I'll get on designers, right? Because it's like, yeah, if you're designing a brand or design any sort of design system, branding anything else, of course, it's easier to break the rules and do whatever the hell you want. Yes, it requires more creativity and more work to work inside the system. And so, again, I think, you know, the ability to lead and help through some of those things definitely makes a big difference. Gotcha. So if you were, you know, a, a creative director or a, a head of design that was looking to implement a, a design system at a major corporation and you were wondering, like, what's step one on this? Right. I assume that has to do with people. But where where would your starting point be in something like that of, of getting over, you know, these very human problems of of design as vanity, of of power struggles, of all these other sorts of things? Like what's some some first steps there? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that the biggest part is just sort of sit down with with all the teammates who are going to be in this, right? So I think sit down with products, sit down with engineering and just say, look, this is what we want to do. Because I think if they're invested, you can probably do a design system. If they are not, and this is going to be a fight, you have a sticker sheet. And -hmm. I think, you know, that ability to just start to understand that. I, I think also just the more you can get away from that war of who is right. Like whenever I started it, it was very much about how do we test it? How do we put it in front of consumers? How do we not make this subjective? How do we actually look at, you know, again, what passes for accessibility? What is going to convert better? What is going to, and again, to try to put some sort of numbers and metrics around that, because I think you want everybody to come together. But again, there's sort of real world results for this. But we also had to do weird things like we actually made a lo-fi version of our design system because that was one of the things we found is that, yes, we could prototype incredibly quickly, but nobody, everybody, everybody just saw the execution. They couldn't see the concept. Everyone would get hung up on the particulars instead of the the overarching. But I think that's that's where it gets so complicated because this is not a one plus one equals two because there's you have to look at the organizational complexity to look at what is the adoption going to look like? What does that teamwork sort of look like? And then I think based on that, you'll sort of figure out, okay, look, can we try to do something and launch it to everybody? Do I need to go much smaller and try to just find a success story? Like my trick there, like take build, you start to build your system and then go use it on a project nobody cares about. Because mm-hmm. I, that's another big mistake I see is a lot of leaders are like, oh, let's go try to redesign the biggest, shiniest thing where all the resistance and red tape and no hope of getting this off the ground lives. So, yeah, I think that ability to to try to figure out, OK, you know, how much how much is my support going to be there and, and look at some of those issues make a big difference. So, so <laughs> let's get our hip boots in and wade into this whole um, power struggle for who controls the content of your design system, right? We've, we've gone from a world where we thought about things like like Dreamweaver, where you had like visual design, where you could drag boxes and, and create HTML out of that. And then, you know, we have this idea of, of vector-based design tools and comps basically being the, the source of truth that leads to then code. And now we're in a place where design systems where, you know, that that is shifting more towards the center in a way that I, I don't think it has in, you know, recent memory been to, right? And we're in a situation now where that shared control, the way I've always looked at it is that, you know, design's way of sort of, of speaking to to their power in a design system is the ability to define the rules, right? Like you can basically say like, these are the rules of engagement for for my development team. And this is the the framework that we want to work within, the construct. But then they also have to abide by that that framework until they they truly don't, until you create those you know snowflake experiences that live as, as one-offs. So you can take that off-ramp from the design system. And, you know, developers then have this, this new sense of control of, like, okay, I'm f- more free to interpret the designs that are in front of me, the comps that are in front of me, because it's no longer about like move that thing one pixel to the left. It's about am I following the rules of the system? 
Do you kind of look at it the same way or do you view it as as a, a sort of different set of constructs in that? I mean, I, I think I do, because in many cases, I, I think, you know, design systems, like I said, I think if you look at them too myopically, you sort of look at them as scrapbooking. But I, I do think our ability to sort of institutionalize the rules and how we want to do it to really concentrate on the experience should be much more empowering. Right. But I, I think in many cases, though, there also needs to be a recognition that our discipline of design has shifted from visual design to product design. And I think in many cases, we tend to be trapped by sort of that that institutional legacy thinking of visual design or are treated as such in the like make it pretty kind of way of doing things. But I think that that that's just, that alone has been a big shift. Explore that a little bit more. Tell me what you mean by that, because I, I think that's actually a really powerful statement is is visual design to product design. Is that about the practicality of how that design approach is done or is that a deeper kind of thing? I think it's a deeper thing because like you said, even as you just sort of were, were sort of walking through the timeline early on, we would do design because we could. Right. It just, mm-hmm. you know, we and I think we sort of went through an age of visual like let's do things because they were sort of pretty or interesting. And there was an explosion of filters and drop shadows and, you know, PNG and like all that junk. Right. And then I think we sort of like overcorrected and then we went into sort of like the engineering age where it was more responsive design. It was much more code based. Then I think we were sort of, you know, right now sort of in that area of like revenue generated. And I think that's as we made that shift into product design, just because we have to answer for more. It just can't just be about the look anymore. I think it's about collaboration with these other teams. It's gotten more complicated. It's about answering for business results. It's about Mm -hmm. having a seat at the leadership table, which we never have really had before. And I think all of those are shifts. And in many cases, I think we are also a little bit guilty that our mindset hasn't caught up with some of those things. But no, it's just it's a fundamentally different way of looking at things, of looking at our role. Of And I think but that's also the thing that in visual design, it was about like pixel perfect comps mm-hmm. in product design. We have evolved to de- to designing dynamic data systems. And it is just a fundamentally different thing. And that's what ultimately led to design systems was because of this evolution and that's what i said is i I just think in many cases we still sort of pine for the romantic visual design days and that's just not the world anymore i love that thread that idea that you know there's these data systems and these more data-driven ideas of what design really is this at at this point right where you're gonna have a designer say like hey you know uh that design has a performance impact like i would love to have that conversation be be surfaced in a customer meeting where a designer is telling me that you know, the performance of something is going to degrade or there's something that is is impractical from an accessibility standpoint. And I think that we're starting to have more and more of those conversations. Like that's not a pipe dream. That's something that I'm seeing more and more of every day. And that's exciting because that means that, you know, these two worlds are are coalescing more towards the middle of each because I'm also watching developers at, at our customers have a lot more, you know, design savvy ideas, right? Like, hey, you know, uh, working within the bounds of my design system or within the constraints that are, that are in front of me, like what if I interpreted, you know, this design comp in this particular way where, you know, those gaps in fidelity that always exist, you're allowing your developers to make a lot more interesting and better decisions about those than kind of ever before. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, it, I don't know what, maybe it's a controversial opinion or something, but I think for me, it's just, I've always really liked design systems because I think it lets us have the conversations we should be having. I don't right. want to talk about button color. I don't want to talk about type size. I don't because, again, when all that's institutionalized into rules. Great. Let's focus on the quality of the content. Let's talk about conversion. Like, let's talk because I think design has just fallen on swords that it shouldn't have been for a bit too long because it was always mm-hmm. very easy to come back and say, oh, well, if the button would have been green or if the type would have been bigger or if the and it's just like, look, we look at this and we've tested this, right? Like, this is not the problem. Let's look at what is the story we are telling? How is it converting? What is the experience? 
and really sort of dig into that. So I think that to me was the ability to get to that conversation really became empowering because for me, like that was what our purpose really was, was to be able to get to those sort of things. So yeah, I think ultimately for me, that's kind of the nirvana that can sit on the other side of as you start to get to a mature design system is great. Let's actually start to have some real conversations because I sort of feel like because we are the unknown, right? Because in many cases, whenever you go in, it's like, oh, well, is it going to take a day or a week? Or like somehow we're all sitting around wearing a beret doing a watercolor of our spirit animal, right? Like, and it's just, that's what I said is I think there's just a lot of cases we absorb things and maybe we shouldn't. And no, I think you're exactly right that when you can get to those conversations, that to me is product design. That is getting your seat at the leadership table. That's having a business impact. And again, to be able to really sit there in a way that we haven't in the past. Oh man, I love that. I think that that the idea that, you know, you're designing for that impact. You're designing for that that like business case. And it's not about, you know, let me nudge this a couple of pixels or let me change this color. It's about having like the real conversations of, of what story we're telling. And, I, you know, you touched on something that I've been really nerding out about lately, which is like the role of content in a design system, right? So when we think about this, this is like the third leg of that three-legged stool, like, you know, to actually have an experience out on the web or in a native app, it's design, it's development, but it's also content. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really figured out as an industry, I think, how to incorporate content into our design systems yet. I think that there's a lot of enabling things there. There's a lot of stuff for producers that are there that are kind of like these nascent things that we're starting to work on with stuff like schemas inside of components and and things like that. But I don't think we've really nailed exactly what the role of content is inside of a design system yet. And I would love to hear your thoughts on where that's headed, because that's something that I I see as a, a big gap right now. And there is a, a, a burgeoning sense of needing to fill that need pretty mm-hmm. soon. No, 100%. Because I, well, I think most of the time, in my experience, kind of that first horizon is just how do we get to visual consistency, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's just like, how does it all look the same? Those sort of things. Then I think it's like, okay, great. Now that we have that down, how do we get to interaction consistency? How does a modal come up? How do we? How are we handling animation? And yeah, I think content is, and this for me has been true for, again, I think, you know, I always I've joked for a while that I kind of felt like whenever Gutenberg invented the printing press, like there was his best buddy was sitting next to him going like content's going to matter now. And we're still having <laughs> the same conversation. Um, but I think, you know, for me, that's always been sort of the defining factor. in a lot of this stuff is content strategy. And, you know, in many cases, I think designers tend to be at fault for this because we tend to design something. And we put in a copy block and it's just like, hey, put something in there. But I think, you know, that ability to really start to understand and appreciate what is content strategy, how do we start to really look at this? How do we do it as performance? This is why I love things like design systems and modular design. A lot of the work I did at Starwood was actually creating reactive and responsive interfaces that would change contextually based on what you were doing so we could Mm -hmm. push content to you. I was really tired of smart apps having dumb experiences. But I think as we look at, you know, how to be more proactive, and I think, you know, we're on that precipice where we started to see, I think most designers struggle with wearables because it's all right. about curating content and pushing it to people. Look at Alexa or, or, you know, Google Home or whatever too, right? Like that's a whole new experience that we're designing for that, you know, without the visual, like what right. is design in that area, right? Well, and I, I think that for me is why there's going to be an increased importance on that content strategy. Like, yes, it's the written word. Yes, it's the photo. But as you look at voice-driven interfaces, as you look at, you know, we're on on the edge of being, what, six months away probably from the launch of legitimate launch of like 5G as a platform, which you have to believe is going to be fueled by this pandemic. Like there's a lot of this content that start to really going to make the difference around those sort of things because the days of just doing something because we technically could are no longer interesting or impressive. This is why I think a lot of the 
the big evolutions are going to be more network driven on our ability to get to data. But no, I think that that is truly the unsung hero. And there's a lot of very progressive companies. This is the exact conversation I'm having is how do we educate people that again, content strategy is not your ability to write a sentence and that it really is thinking about it holistically of doing interactive dynamic storytelling a lot of this really important stuff. Yeah, I really want to get to the point that design systems can support that experience personalization you're talking about, where you can think about the context of a user, you can think about the context of the content they're consuming. And one of the things that like we've all gotten pretty good at in technology these days is, is content personalization. I mean, it's it's okay. It maybe is not great, but getting to the point that not just the content is personalized, but the experience itself is personalized. This is a controversial example, but I have an accessibility need. So should my experience be different? I have a need that is geolocation based. Should my experience be different? All of those types of things, I feel like, you know, are really too complex to fit into bespoke systems. And so you really need that systematic approach to them to be able to even realize that possibility. But that is an exciting new world that I think that we're on the precipice of of looking into. Well, I think for me, what you're bringing up is that other horizon that we're going to need to start to look at. And I would argue would probably should be in the conversation around design systems, which is also just data. Because I think in many cases, we're talking about the reason why we often can't do more personalized things or we can't sort of get it beyond the basic, I know your name and your last purchase is because usually our profile data is trash. And that, you know, again, those are only magical and effective experiences if the data is right. If not, I mean, this is why, yeah, every time I go onto an online shopping site and buy a baby gift, I don't have kids, but somehow if I buy one baby present, all of a sudden I'm stuck with like cribs for six months. But I I think, you know, we need to start to look at, again, as we're designing dynamic data systems, we're going to need to take a bit more of a step into that realm to realize how it influences our design. Amazon is probably one of the best cases of this. And it definitely thought that I was a 39 year old pregnant woman for a while. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and that's what I said. But I think that's just transactional because I think that was a big part of like when I was at Starwood, what we were trying to do was to really look at. What was preference? What what was loyalty? How do we do that? How do you push that out to people? How do we start to refine and even expose the data of saying, look, this is what we know about you. Is this even right? Because like whenever Mm -hmm. I got there, for some reason, I'm 6'4", and it always had me as a twin bed preference. I don't know why, but I think it was just that simple thing of saying, hey, look, if you signed up for this account whenever you were 20, you opened a bank account, you did whatever this is, and you're now 45, you're a fundamentally different person. So I think there's also... As we look at design, I think that ability of bringing in time as a horizon of how people change, I think these are all going to be the starts of some of these dimensions we're going to need to start to think about is, yeah, what is our data clarity and what can we actually do? Or how do we leverage other triggers that we can use to trigger these interesting experiences? Now, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is something that I'm very on about with you know a lot of the work that we do is is around the idea that if like you're not collecting metrics about your design system, you're really doing yourself a disservice because you're not measuring the effectiveness of the design system, first of all, but you're also not measuring the effectiveness and the net effect to your users. And you might only be able to measure that in really simple ways right now. Like, you know, hey, do I have better conversions or easier A-B testing or fewer defects or faster load times or whatever, right? Like the, the basic rote experience pieces, but that's at least some set of data that you can start to look at that understands really the impact of that design system, not just on the other consumers, but the actual end users of those digital products. Well, yeah, and I think especially you talk about that second phase where it tends to fail, where all of a sudden everybody, there's that mass adoption. I think like when I was at City and other places, that's sort of how we survived it was that we had data. We went mm-hmm. out and we had tested. I could tell you what button converted better. We're not discussing if it's upper or lowercase that it has a carrot or a drop. Like we've already tested all this, right? Like, and there are certain things that are just not going to be up for debate. 
and that if you have any interest in that, here's the data, here's the research that we did, this is why we made the decision that we did. But it's also then that way we're not having to chew up so much of that team's time with these just sort of like innocuous and endless challenges to the system. Right. And that's how you get to explosive scale inside of an organization, right? That's how you get every digital product on your design system is you sit there and you you don't just have like the the qualitative ideas of like, hey, you know, the team really likes this. You actually have the quantitative stuff to back it up of, of we have a really a more fundamental understanding of what experiences are the right experiences than we've ever had before. Well, and plus then I think it also to what we were talking about before you can then open the door and pivot on that conversation of why is there no trust here and why do you not believe the work that we're doing? Is it just that you want some level of individual control? Like, let's actually talk about what's actually happening here, which is sort of, again, that there is some breakdown in trust. There is some lack of either investing or, again, you want your own kingdom and your own city. But like, let's at least have a conversation about what's actually going on there. Of, of what's really influencing that and sort of driving that that behavior. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that, that getting to the point where you can have that honest conversation without the data to back that up, you can definitely spin your wheels a lot trying to, to really find that truth. Yeah, and that's why I mean, that's why I've always been a huge believer in in all my work, right? It's like, what is that human truth? And then how do we sort of continue to iterate and test on making sure that lines back to it? And that's why, yeah, we used to test those ideas every, like every Thursday. We used to do a thing where you'd bring people in and test it. So that once a week, you knew there was a source of truth, a way to settle the debate. It wasn't about who was right. Great. Your idea and my idea both sound interesting. Let's go test both of them. But then mm -hmm. there's some sort of research. And I think that's that part is, you know, historically, we may not have leaned into that the way that we should have. But if you can say, look, we've looked at this stuff. This is how it performs. That We see we get a 5% lift over this sort of thing. It's great that you like all caps. It doesn't convert. Right. Partially just because I think, yeah, they're not used to that argument coming out of a designer. But again, I think that's then speaking more of that language of business. That's more of the, again, getting away from visual design and getting into product design, because those are going to be speaking the language of what product design is going to care about. No, and that's that's how you get to your product owners and get them to to want to use a design system, because if you can show that a design system leads to better conversion, I mean, that's the metric that a product owner cares about. That's the thing they take to their SVP and, and say, like, hey, I need budget for this or, hey, I need to adopt this. And that's a really, really powerful way of of putting yourself in the shoes of that product owner that needs to you know, go seek that budget, go make that case for why this is important to the team beyond the fact that it makes you know software better, faster, stronger. It also has a net effect to users. Well, and I think the really important thing that you've said or that we've been saying is also the word product. Because I think as you look to get it funded, as you look to get it off the ground, one of the biggest struggles is that this is getting organizations to invest in what is essentially infrastructure. Right, which they are not used to doing or usually don't understand. And so in many cases, this is not a project. This is not a journey that they can do. But I think if you're able to treat it like a product, if you're able to show results like it's a product, then it, it starts to put it into places that they really understand and that it's not just sort of infrastructure for infrastructure's sake or so that, again, something looks prettier, that they really start to view it as a product that has real results. And then it starts to get treated much more seriously. Absolutely. So in the time of COVID, things are a little bit crazy for people career-wise right now. There's a, a lot going on. There's a lot of people that are in industries that are experiencing you know, rapid change, rapid layoffs. It's a crazy world out there right now. And I know you've been working on a, a side project called the Amazing Design People List. Um, and I really want to give you a, just a few minutes to talk about what that's all about, because I think it's a pretty incredible service you're doing for for the design community. Yeah, it was interesting. So I think whenever this this really started to hit home, and I think within the first probably week or two, as we started to see, I mean, there's some teams that I work with, I mean, they're laying off 90% of their teams. 
it was just sort of like, look, how can we do something to help? And it was interesting. I got approached by a lot of people who had different ideas. There were two designers, Felix Lee and, and James Badawar, who sort of approached me. And they said, look, you know, we've got this. This is right now. It's a Google sheet where we're just trying to collect everybody that's been affected or is looking for work. But we want to try to make it into something more. And we sort of talked about that. And so it's turned into a site that is really, I think, is something we're proud of and feel like it was doing something really special. Part of it is the ability that, hey, look, if you have been affected, if you have lost your job, you can go there and actually get listed as looking for work. In many cases, you know, we felt like it, there's this thing of like, look, you just have to kind of carpet bomb jobs. Let's try to flip that around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where companies who are still hiring can list jobs. I think as of today, there are 130 active open positions that were there. But I think we also just sort of looked at the general hiring process. And especially as designers, it, it's so incredibly broken, if we're just being honest, because you, you go for the job and either you get it or you don't. And rarely do you get any feedback as to why or how do you level right. up or how do you get better? So we created a mentor section. And right now it's about 130 of probably, I think, just some of the most amazing design leaders from companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, um, Atlassian, just on and on and on and on. And the idea really is to be able to give people the ability to get their portfolio and resume reviewed, get feedback, get some coaching if if that particular mentor wants to be able to do it. But it really is just a it's been a 100 percent community driven initiative to try to give back so that we can find some way of trying to make a difference, seeing how many people have been impacted. Yeah, it's a really incredible project. Uh, I'm just absolutely amazed at the the people that are on this thing that are, are contributing as mentors. Uh, looking around as employers, and I think it's just an incredible service. And so, you know, I I want to support this any way I can. This is a big chance if you're out there looking for a job, if you're uh, an employer that has some job openings. It's an incredible opportunity for you to do something for the design community, get involved, help people that are going through a really trying time for all of us. And I just encourage you to check it out. Uh, where can people go to to learn more? Yeah, so you can just go to adplist.org. Um, it's it's a nonprofit, so again, we're just you know, doing it to try to help people out. And like I said, we're adding more mentors all the time where as anytime we find out about jobs, um, we're getting those listed. If we're finding out about companies that are having big layoffs, we're trying to reach out to them. But yeah, I think if, if you've been affected, please go get listed, look at some of those jobs. If you're somebody who'd like to be a mentor, you can go onto the site and apply. Felix and I personally review them to make sure we're getting people who do have coaching and mentoring experience. There's sort of other ways you can give back if you don't have that kind of experience. But yeah, it's adplist.org. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, Stephen. That's a really incredible thing. Again, appreciate you being on the show. This has been a great conversation. I look forward to many future chats. Uh, This has been Stephen Gates, host of The Crazy One. Thank you again so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud or at knapsackcloud on Twitter. That's all for today. We'd love to hear from you with questions, ideas for new episodes, beer recommendations, or comments. You can find us on Twitter at the DS Pod. Cheers, and thanks for listening to the Design Systems Podcast. Mm-hmm.